Welcome to this Nodia on Your Mind podcast. I'm Johan Trokmi, and I'm really happy to have you, my partner in crime, Victor Sonebeck, here in the studio with me. Victor? Happy to be here. And I am particularly happy uh, to also welcome a guest as we are continuing our new drive of having uh, conversations about our Nodia on Your Mind topics with guest speakers in these uh, podcast talks. So I say a very warm welcome to you, Henrik Immelborn. Uh, you run the uh, Debt Solutions and Loans unit at Nodia in Denmark. Uh, I, I uh, welcome you warmly to this conversation. Thank you. And, and why why don't we start by you telling us a bit about your role? What is it that you actually do at work? And uh, not to let you get off the hook that easily about your own introduction, why don't you mention something unexpected about you as well? Not just professionally, anything from your life. I think I'll start with the uh, last piece, Johan. Uh, thanks for having me here. When I was at uni uh, in the 90s, I became the undefeated uh, champion of a table hockey tournament uh, three years in a row with my partner in crime uh, from my dormitory. Uh, We defeated the uh, competing teams uh, on three occasions, uh, three years in a row, and uh, we haven't lost a single game since then, uh, which is why we stopped back in the 90s. Fantastic. I love it. Stopping at the peak. That's the way to go, Uh, right? Indeed. Um, And then uh, turning to the professional side of your question, In my team, we advise uh, large corporates on capital structure and on uh, debt instruments. And that includes looking at debt capacity in relation to M&A transactions or major investments. We also advise on takeout strategies across capital markets. uh, And we uh, advise corporates on uh, credit rating process. And we're part of the investment bank at Nordea. And I guess, Henrik, there there might be a bigger need or or a bigger market for, for being a professional within the banking world instead of being a professional in the table hockey sphere? I think the upside in table hockey is uh, somewhat limited. So uh, yes, I agree totally with that statement, Victor. Clearly lucky for Nodia, I suppose. Henrik, with all the things you mentioned about the types of advice that your team provides to to corporates, when when we talk about corporate funding, it's a bit different from, say, us as individuals taking up a loan if we want to buy a house or a boat or whatever it might be. Do you want to warm us up a bit by just saying a few words about how corporate borrowing works? Because what you do is advise large corporates, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think the key difference is obviously that the situation a corporate treasury is in is quite different compared to our uh, personal uh, financing. So uh, they they have uh, a certain corporate agenda, uh, which they are trying to support uh, by rigging their financial decisions and providing the capital that is needed to uh, to deliver, for example, on M&A uh, or investments uh, or whatever it can be. Now, this particular topic that we wrote about in our latest Nodi on your mind report uh, that we called uh, uh, the hunt for the right leverage, more than usual, it has pretty clear, explicit ties to, to the theoretical world, the academic world. And and in the case of financing, there is, of course, this famous theory, uh, which both you and I have, have encountered in our university days. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the Millimodigliani theorem, um, where the conclusion of its original classical simple form is that capital structure doesn't really matter for the value of a company. But then... That conclusion is based on making a number of assumptions which do not hold all that well in reality. And and, and one of those key assumptions is that we have perfectly functioning capital markets, that there's always the ideal perfect price discovery for financial instruments at any given point in time. And I think you probably have some pretty good reflections on to what extent that is true in your everyday work life. Yeah, and I think there are lots of interesting aspects here uh, to to, uh, consider. 
Um, one of them that links quite neatly back to the theory that was outlined in the uh, report is the uh, is the packing order theory, you know, which says that corporates, they try to fund uh, their investments first from cash flows, then from debts, and then only finally as a last resort from equity. Uh, but in practice, uh, that decision-making and sequence of, uh, of financing becomes quite blurred for a number of market imperfections. So if we start on the debt side, uh, not all corporates are bankable. So banks, they typically look at a corporate and say, do we think there's a good chance that this corporate will uh, be able to repay the debt within, say, three years' time from now? Uh, and, 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 and clearly that uh, for immature, younger corporates, that can be quite difficult. And particularly if you have very large investments in CapEx, uh, you probably need to bypass the pecking order theory and go directly to equity. Mm. Uh, but also for more mature corporates, uh, not all financial markets are available at all times. It could well be that the combination of currency, volume, tenor, means that uh, you simply can't uh, go to, for example, bond markets. Uh, and that can lead you to certain decisions that uh, at the face value may look, uh, you know, why, why are they diluting the shareholder base? Um, so, so I think in practice, you, you have these market imperfections that, uh, that kick in and affects uh, how corporates react. And that also links into the uh, on the equity side of things. Clearly, there can be restrictions, there can be documentational burdens that uh, makes it difficult for companies to access certain products. Valuation from time to time, which is something you address in the report, is also something that can prevent corporates from going uh, down the route of equity financing. And uh, clearly, if a main owner, let's say a main owner owns 40-50% and are unable to support a company, then the equity market may be quite difficult in certain uh, circumstances. Sounds like a lot of complexity for these big, complex, often very international or global companies um, and, and, and that uh, a very simplistic theoretical model <laughs> might be pretty far from explaining the reality that we see in, in our daily work lives. It is complex indeed and that's how we justify our existence to a large extent. Um, I, I think quite often we find that we, we don't either have all the answers so we try to present corporates with uh, the pros and cons of the available options uh, and potentially the steps that could lead to more flexibility. I think that's something we we'll come back to a bit later, uh, that one of our key advice at this point of the cycle is uh, to have as much flexibility as possible. And what are the different tools that uh, needs to be in place to get that flexibility? And uh, on that note, Henrik, I, I wanted to ask you, g- given your description of this this uh, funding landscape uh, and, and where corporates uh, find their funding, uh, would you say that this is this is uh, rather static and that it doesn't change very much, or has this varied over time? And I'm thinking, of course, uh, particularly do, during the, the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic of of uh, 2020 how has has it differed in terms of where companies can find their funding uh, and also how, how well the markets are functioning yeah I, I would say we've seen a quite dramatic shift in the way corporates access and use uh, capital markets in general over the last 15 20 years and here i think the nordic region is a little bit different both certainly compared to us anglo-saxon world but also europe in general um, so traditionally nordic corporates have been quite conservative uh, when they approach capital markets so in the beginning they were equity financed and then they went to the bank if they needed to load up on debt and in between there were very few alternatives 
say for the very large corporates such as Volvos, APML, Maersk, etc., Nokia perhaps, which uh, had a credit rating and access bond markets. I think over the last 10-15 years we've seen the development of the local Nordic bond markets uh, and the number of issuers and the various deal structures have really grown as well. And we also see more complex and uh, exotic instruments from time to time coming to the market. So clearly the options are much greater and there the complexity also enters the picture and the arena and the advice that corporates need to be able to make good decision about which instruments work from a particular point in time is more important. So that's the uh, sort of long to medium term perspective. If we look back over the last year and you mentioned the COVID-19 lockdown, clearly something happened there. So a lot of corporates reacted to the crisis. They went through their CapEx, they went through their OpEx, they sent home uh, part of the employees, uh, they sought liquidity injections, uh, sometimes with the state guaranteed packages. Uh, and we banks, we, fa- we saw a lot of inbound requests from uh, for backup liquidity. So clearly bank volumes grew substantially. I think in the uh, in the couple of months post uh, post the lockdown about a year ago, uh, we probably executed loan volume similar to full year's volume, just to give you an idea of the quantum of uh, of requests at that point in time. Many of them remain undrawn, and I think today, uh, where you know the situation is a little bit differently, I think some corporates are beginning to cancel those facilities or thinking of whether they should be a more long term part of the capital structure, but a lot of them has to remain undrawn, which is really what their main purpose was, say for a rainy day. You, you mentioned uh, state guarantees for some funding, Henrik, and, and, and I think uh, it, it's kind of inevitable to ask the question, what role that has played? We put out another Nudie on Your Mind report in September last year, where we looked at the impact from the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy and particularly on the corporate sector. How, how much did it affect corporate financial performance? And, and, and the answer that we found in the analysis was that corporates actually managed to financially cope surprisingly well despite the pressure from this dramatic and sudden big drop in demand that happened because of all the lockdowns and restrictions with consumers not being able to be there and and, and consume in the ways that we used to. Uh, and, and it's without a doubt a fact that that state support in various forms and also central bank support in, in, in the form of liquidity to capital markets has played an important role in, in helping corporates cope less badly uh, during this very intense period when, when the pandemic impact was at its worst. But if we stick to just for a moment the funding side, would you say that it's been a big thing that there has been support in the form of, for example, guarantees for certain types of credits uh, or, or for example, liquidity looking at the demand side for corporate bonds? Uh, how much of an impact has that made in the landscape? I, I would say that it has been an important tool in certain situations. But if we think about the order of importance here, uh, yes, a lot of corporates faced potential demand shocks where they saw their order backlog shrink, uh, cash flow generation or the forecast, they look uh, certainly more gloomy. And a lot of our clients, they did quite advanced forecasting, trying to uh, describe various scenarios and what would be the implications. But I must say that uh, many of our clients were um, very focused and very successful in reducing their cost base to try to minimize this impact with the measures that we uh, we mentioned. Secondly, they were then able to go to their creditors, particularly banks, and in some cases, uh, perhaps bond markets, 
and they were able, able to solve the uh, issues and agree certain relaxations uh, on a commercial basis. And only uh, as a sort of third, you know, third in line, uh, certain corporates needed to uh, access uh, COVID-19 liquidity state guarantees, for example, provided by EKN or EKF or Vexfonden. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that was the minority of cases, maybe less than 10%. And as a last resort, then, if that was not possible and you needed extra uh, gunpowder, then the equity markets were, uh, you know, accessed. But I would say that the uh, corporates were able to fix a lot of these issues internally, and then they went to the banks on a commercial basis. So in certain situations, very important, but in the grand scheme of things, I think it was marginal uh, rather than, you know, instrumental across the board. So it sounds like there has been quite a bit of development, not only in terms of the size, the volume of bond issuance, but also quite a bit of development and perhaps maturation of the Nordic corporate bond markets compared with 20 years ago, since they apparently functioned under the circumstances quite well during an intense shock like COVID-19. Is that fair, you think? Or is there plenty of room for further improvement? Yeah, I think it's sometimes maybe difficult to comment on the bond market as a whole, because the bond market consists of different pockets um, and they tend to align according to the investor base. So investors have different mandates and they're focused on different parts of the bond market. And this sort of links back to the imperfections that we talked about earlier. So you don't have, at least only in the short to medium term, you don't have a free flow across these pockets of money. Um, but yes, there has been a development. So 15, 20 years ago, it was rated investment grade bonds that you know, consisted the majority of the deal flow from the Nordics. And today we have a uh, whole range of uh, unrated corporates coming to the bond markets, both on a re- regular basis and also on a more opportunistic basis. Uh, and that is being served by a predominantly local investor base, I would say, with some international participation. And that's a different market compared to the broader European investment grade market. It's in fact a um, quite specific market for the Nordics. We we don't see the quite uh, level of developed unrated markets in the other uh, European countries. And this market has uh, a lot of pros, but also some considerations. So it's a little bit easier to access uh, documentation-wise. Um, but I think uh, what we saw during the COVID-19 crisis was that uh, it's also a bit less robust in terms of uh, market access when when volatility hits the market. So it tends to be closed down a little bit longer than the rated investment grade market. Um, and there maybe I think the, it's just the number of investors are fewer and maybe the transparency of unrated corporates are just less or lower than, say, corporate that has a rating. So I think we'll continue the discussions with our clients on, you know, what are the target markets over the cycle? What is it that is most important? Is it continuous access or is it sort of ease of uh, documentation and quick processes? And that's a trade-off. Uh, and different markets have uh, different formats. So in the Euro market, it needs to be a certain deal size, whereas in the Nordic market, it can be smaller. So I think there are a lot of issues that, uh, a lot of considerations that comes into play on um, 
crafting a, uh, a capital market strategy. Uh, would you say, Henrik, fr- from your perspective, that this, this uh, credit rating uh, became even more important during the, the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I think I think diversification of funding is something that is at the uh, top of the agenda of many uh, corporates today. And a credit rating is a natural step, or natural uh, consideration in that dialogue, because it will give over time, better access to markets. It will give better pricing, cheaper funding, uh, but it also comes with a cost. It also comes with fixed cost in terms of uh, paying for the rating and resourcing. And what we find uh, from a practical level is that many corporate treasurers are quite stretched. Uh, they're faced with uh, cost constraints and to add another stakeholder, the rating agency, into the daily work can sometimes be difficult uh, from just an operational perspective. And there, you know, if, if you can't get the resources, then, you know, the, the money you can save uh, is maybe, you know, only secondary uh, from, from that decision making. Uh, and on the topic of, of uh, diversification uh, in funding sources, I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, because we, we've talked about debt funding and equity funding as well, uh, but you also have hybrid instruments, right? So, so you have the, the mix in between which companies can use to fund themselves. Um, and I guess my question would be, for what companies is this a suitable solution? Um, when is it used? And, and have we seen a change in this, this uh, or, or in the usage of this funding source uh, in the past year? Hybrid as a concept is not so novel. We, we can go back and look at uh, preference shares, which has been a part of at least the Swedish market for quite some time. Uh, but that was wrapped in a more sort of you know, equity, maybe even retail format back in the days. I think then people discovered that a hybrid has more of a fixed income uh, feature to it. Uh, so, so the wrapping became a little bit different and then it was targeted more to bond investors uh, or investors that were looking for a strong uh, or relatively high, high yield instrument with, with a fixed payoff. Uh, but that development really started in the um, in the large corporate segment. Uh, so we had corporates like Vattenfall or Dong Energy issuing rated hybrids uh, some 15 years ago. Now we've also seen a development of uh, unrated hybrids. And those are two different and quite distinct uh, deal formats, whereas the uh, former one, the rated one, solves for equity treatment uh, by the rating agencies. And the unrated format solves for equity treatment under accounting, under IFRS. Uh, and those are two completely different deal structures with, uh, to a large extent, different investor bases. Um, but that's just an example of how the market has developed. So now, not only the large and very stable utilities with the rating can access the hybrid markets, but we also have uh, smaller corporates coming to the market, enjoying the benefits. If we look back at a pretty turbulent 2020, of course, very much defined by the COVID-19 pandemic, Henrik, um, is is there anything, if I just ask you spontaneously like this, that you would think, looking back at the year, could have been done differently, could have been done better? It sounds like corporates have been, typically here in the Nordics, pretty active, proactive and that they have been in many cases pretty early in 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 trying to stay on top of the situation and 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 take measures to be prepared to weather the storm but but now with with hindsight with the benefit of hindsight looking back at 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 the past year 
do you think that it's all worked pretty well or are there any sort of patterns or, or any sort of behaviors that you have seen where you think that there are lessons to be learned for how to how to deal with the crisis if, if we look ahead, if we run into new challenges at some point? I would say that uh, corporates that were proactive and came came to discuss with uh, banks or with their advisors quite early in the process, they were better off than those that uh, reacted a bit later and thought that things were going to get sorted by themselves somehow. Things rarely get sorted by themselves. Um, in, in fact, it tends to escalate. Um, so, so I would say that th- those that had a careful planning, did their forecasting and quite early realized that under certain scenarios, uh, this could be a problem to us, those were the ones better off in, in general. Um, I also think that um, those that uh, already before the crisis had started to think about, you know, wh- wh- how, how do I best prepare for the uh, unexpected? So either um, considering your banking group, uh, considering how do I complement that uh, with additional sources of capital and what is the impact of their sources uh, when there's an external shock. I think those were also better off. Uh, so preparedness and proactiveness is uh, uh, probably what I would uh, suggest. Whereas I think that the majority of our Nordic clients, they were quite diligent and they were able to uh, to weather through the storm. And we should all be happy and grateful for that, I suppose. Indeed. Henrik, it's been a pleasure to have you with us here for this conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, with that, we want to conclude this Sunday On Your Mind podcast talk. And I will just flag for all you dear listeners that the next topic we will bring up in another On Your Mind report in early May is bank lending under Basel IV to see how that might affect corporate funding. So something related to this but obviously not specifically about uh, today's topic. Uh, It's uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening and see you next time.